Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Days of protest in Jordan have forced the prime minister to resign. The issue is a proposed austerity plan that would satisfy the IMF. With me to talk about the situation is Sean Yam, an associate professor of political science at Temple University, senior fellow in the Middle East program at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. He's also the author of From Resilience to Revolution, How Foreign Investments Destabilize the Middle East. Thanks for joining us, Sean Yam. Thank you. Also with me is Greg Carlson, a Middle East correspondent covering the protests in Jordan for The Economist. Thanks for joining us, Greg. Sure. Thank you. Greg, could you explain what it is about this austerity program that has people in the streets in Jordan? Well, the the short answer is the Jordanian government is caught in between this austerity program, these needed economic reforms on the one hand, and a public that's really struggling on the other. Uh, As part of the $700 million uh, loan from the IMF, which it received about two years ago, uh, the government agreed to cut subsidies on food, fuel, water, staples of basic life that are heavily subsidized. Uh, and also to increase revenue, to increase taxes. But the argument that many of these protesters are making is that uh, they simply can't afford to pay any more or to give any more. This is a country where about one in five people live below the poverty line, which is already not enough, the official poverty line, not enough to live on, uh, particularly in Amman, the capital, which is the most expensive city in the Arab world. That's more expensive than Dubai or Doha or the the sea capitals in the Gulf. That's unbelievable. Uh, so the argument It is. Uh, And so the argument from many of these protesters is that they're already struggling to get by and provide for their families, and they simply can't afford to pay any more than they already are. Um, Sean Yam, is this a situation where this is a economic foreign intervention? Uh, You you wrote a book about foreign intervention destabilizing countries in the Middle East. Uh, This feels like a time when the IMF is doing something that um, destabilizes a country. Yeah. Well, uh, it is and it isn't. Uh, This isn't the first time that austerity measures have been strongly suggested by uh, multilateral lenders like the IMF. And in turn, the imposition of those austerity measures instigates ferocious public backlash uh, due to the rising price of commodities, rising taxation and the overall rising living costs. Um, I will say, however, that this is slightly different than the than than the word. In, I, I would say this differs from the word intervention, as I use it in the book, and as many scholars understand, the problem, the fundamental financial problem in Jordan, is not that the IMF is intervening now. That's the trigger to the uh, current unrest. The problem is that. Jordan simply never raises enough money in order to spend what it feels like it should spend uh, to maintain political stability. And much of that actually has a lot to do, as I point out in my book, with an earlier era of U.S. intervention, economic and political support, which continues today, that early on convinced the Jordanians that they could rely upon the, the Jordanian government, that they could rely upon foreign aid rather than domestic taxation. And as a result, the country never really developed a functional system of domestic taxation and a responsible financial system that never spent more than what it could take in. And those habits have finally caught up to the country uh, today. Well, uh, Greg, how does that sound to you? Does that sound about right? It does. I mean, the, the Jordanian model, in a way, they've behaved historically like the Gulf monarchies, like rentier states. They have a, a huge public sector. More than one in three Jordanians work for either the civil service or for the security forces. 
Uh, it's a country where everything from, again, food to fuel to water is heavily subsidized. The government spends billions every year to subsidize these things. Uh, but unlike the Gulf states, Jordan doesn't have oil. It doesn't have natural resources. And so the thing that it has rented out over the years has been its strategic position as a relatively stable pro-Western monarchy in a very troubled part of the world. And they've used that position to extract billions in foreign aid from both uh, their neighbors in the Gulf and from Western countries, particularly the U.S. Uh, and the problem is that money just isn't enough anymore. It wouldn't be anyway, uh, particularly with we've seen wave after wave of refugees from Palestinians to Iraqis to Syrians that have uh, come into Jordan to the point where native Jordanians are a, a minority now in their own country. Uh, but on top of that, we've seen over the past couple of years, uh, aid from the Gulf states has dried up. There are some policy disputes with the Saudis. Uh, the Gulf states, of course, with low oil prices, have their own economic problems at home. They can't afford to send billions every year to Jordan. Yeah, Greg, uh, so- I, I want to ask about that because it seems like the Saudi money, you know, the, they were offering in uh, the Gulf states a billion dollars to Jordan every year. And they withdrew that, and that's part of the reason for this financial crisis. Was it really over the fact that Jordan didn't side with the Saudis on Qatar? Is that uh, the real reason here? It was a number of things. You're right. After 2011, everyone sort of panicked after the Arab Spring began, and they offered $5 billion over five years. Uh, Since 2016, there have been a number of disputes. Qatar is one. Uh, Jordan hasn't joined the the four-nation blockade of Qatar. Another issue is Yemen. The Jordanians really have been reluctant to send any troops to join the the Saudi-led offensive in Yemen. So there are some policy disputes there. Uh, And then again, the the Saudis are having their own economic problems at home, and they're pulling back a lot of the sort of checkbook diplomacy that they used to do across the Middle East. Um, How does that sound to you, Sean? Does that seem like part of the convergence here? Uh, yes, absolutely. I, I agree with all of that. Now, it also additionally input um, a more contingent factor that has put Jordanian relations with Saudi Arabia uh, in a very uh, tense phase, which is the Jordanian uh, refusal to join uh, the Saudi line and pressuring the Palestinian Authority to accept Jerusalem as the Israeli capital. Uh, that uh, project, the so-called deal of the century, um, I envision, and many scholars envision, as essentially a trilateral project between the U.S., Israel, and Saudi Arabia. And uh, there have been a number of personal interactions between Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia and uh, King Abdullah of Jordan, in which the former has tried to pressure the latter into accepting the Saudi line. Uh, Jordan's breakage with Saudi Arabia on this particular initiative, I think, was the final nail in the coffin that convinced the Saudi government to not extend any more foreign aid to Jordan, um, at least for the foreseeable future, as a kind of punitive sanction uh, to convince the resource-poor kingdom that it should side with Saudi, the Saudi line and the increasing, I think, hegemony that the Saudi government bears in the Middle East uh, in order to bring about its own vision of regional order. Well, should we come to the conclusion that really the regional politics and the Saudis uh, are playing a larger role here than we hear about in the news, that, that they're, um, they're kind of forcing Jordan's hand here and Jordan is uh, in a pickle about uh, policies that, uh, that they seem to have a legitimate right to, to execute? 
I think so. Um, I, I think that we are entering a phase of regional history, which is quite unique, in which none of the traditional centers of pan-Arab politics, indeed of Islamic civilization, Damascus, Baghdad, or Cairo, are any more the leading centers of regional power politics. Instead, it is Riyadh. And I think this is a very dangerous moment for the region, uh, particularly since the Saudi government and the monarchy is very hard to read, and that under the current leadership, it's unclear what direction the Saudi government wishes to take uh, regional order. And I think that Jordan, as first and foremost a client of American power, um, is caught in a very hard place right now in trying to determine how to maintain its geopolitical niche while at the same time maintaining uh, a, a consistent stance on the Palestinian issue, which it sees for a variety of demographic and historical reasons as not simply a strategic interest, but an existential an existential uh, factor for its own survival. Um, lastly, Sean, uh, does this shuffling of prime ministers, which is kind of a usual thing in Jordan, and a new kind of conversation about the austerity plan, does that make uh, all this stuff we're talking about go away? Uh, no, it doesn't. And I, and I see what's happening in Jordan now as almost a tragic thing. Uh, you know, Jordan's always had a cyclical uh, economic and political process where austerity measures instigate public backlash, which instigates the, the royal palace dismissing the government it appointed, appointing a new prime minister, promising to listen to the people and promising everything will be okay. Uh, this is a point in Jordan, Jordanian uh, history, financial and political history in particular, where things are not okay. Uh, unless the Central Bank of Jordan discovers several billion dinar or dollars in a hidden account that it didn't hitherto have access to before, um, the new government won't be able to do anything. Uh, the new government, the governments are appointed in Jordan to promulgate policy, which are generally decided at a much higher level. And the fact that they've chosen a prime minister who, a new prime minister, uh, Omar Rezes, who is very respected, has more public credibility than many past prime ministers, and is seeing as more younger and in tune with the needs of the populace, I see it as a tragic thing, because I think that what will happen is that this government will still be charged with imposing austerity measures. Uh, the honeymoon period for this new prime minister will be exceedingly short. And his political career will be uh, deprived and exhausted, and he'll be dismissed in a short amount of time when protests arise against the new government. And in a way, this is, this is the, the, the political life cycle of prime ministers in Jordan. Sean Yam is with Temple University. He's author of From, Resistant, From Resilience to Revolution, How Foreign Interventions Destabilize the Middle East. And thanks to Greg Carlson, Middle East correspondent covering the protests in Jordan for The Economist. Thank you both. Thank you very much. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the complicated legacy of RFK. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Today marks 50 years since Robert F. Kennedy was shot after winning the California primary. Before his murder, RFK underwent a transformation on foreign and domestic policy, much like Martin Luther King did towards the end of his life. Ironically, the most famous announcement of Martin Luther King's death came from Kennedy during a campaign stop in Indianapolis. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm only going to talk to you just for a minute or so this evening because I have some very sad news for all of you. I have some very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. A month ago, we remembered the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s death with historian Vijay Prashad, and we talked about King's foreign policy transformation before he died. Vijay Prashad is back with us to talk about RFK's legacy. Vijay works with Tricontinental, the Institute for Social Research. He's author of the book The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, and his latest is The Death of the Nation and the Future of the Arab Revolution. Thanks for joining us, Vijay. Thanks, Jerome. You know, Robert F. Kennedy is a complicated guy. A lot of people remember him as this peace candidate that was assassinated in 1968. But he was also, for his career, a hard-nosed, hard-charging guy and attorney general. And he did a lot of things in the early 60s that were not so peace candidate-oriented. Jerome, it's important to remember that Robert Kennedy in 1968 was the candidate of the peace movement of the American left. You know, it's not a question of who was Robert Kennedy. It's He understood, I think, quite cannily that in order for him to have an impact in the Democratic nomination, he had to take up the space of the left. And so you hear him in 1968 saying things about the Vietnam War which are not exactly what the American left was saying, but was trying to modulate the left. So if the left said, you know, unconditional withdrawal from Vietnam, it's an imperialist war. Kennedy said, look, it's not a war we can win, so we need to negotiate with the Vietnamese. In 1965, Robert Kennedy was very noncommittal in his language about Vietnam, as you can hear in this interview he did with the CBC. There's a widespread feeling in Canada and elsewhere that Vietnam is really an American war and that the Americans had no business to get involved in it. And that may be one of the reasons why countries like Canada have been reluctant to send troops. What do you say to that kind of criticism? Well, I, d- I don't know what the really the alternative at any time would be. In the meantime, we're involved in it. And, uh, and uh, if anybody has a solution of how you get out of it, if those in Canada feel that it's a mistake, and if anybody has an idea how you, other than just to pack up and leave, and I don't think anybody suggests that at the moment. But by 1968, Kennedy's rhetoric on Vietnam was unambiguous. As we stand here today, brave young men are fighting across an ocean. Here, while the moon shines, men are dying on the other side of the earth. Which of them might have written a poem. Which of them might have cured cancer? Which of them might have played in the World Series? 
for giving us the gift of laughter from a stage or help build a bridge or build a university. Which of them would have taught a child how to read? And I believe it is our responsibility to make sure that these men live. And that is why I run for president of the United States. He was very clever in using the demands of the left, very powerful left at that time, an anti-war left. He was able to use their demands to put forward, I think, a moderate Cold War position. And, you know, when somebody like that is assassinated, their own history, their own reputation is quite transformed and he becomes legendary. Uh, of course, this prevents us from going back to the Robert Kennedy, who was in many ways a mainstream cold warrior, whether it is, uh, you know, in his relationship to the civil rights movement, you know, which wasn't the relationship of somebody in the moral trenches. He didn't say, I opposed racism because it's wrong. In most of his speeches, in many of his utterances, his letters, he says, I'm for the civil rights movement because racism makes us look bad vis-a-vis -vis the Soviets. And so here you have Robert Kennedy going into the civil rights movement as a cold warrior, not taking a moral position. Much the same, you know, when it comes to uh, wars abroad, American military presence abroad, whether in Vietnam or Indochina or Indonesia or indeed Japan, in each of these instances, Kennedy was the consummate cold warrior, not the peace candidate, you know, from 1960 to 68. I'm talking with Vijay Prashad, director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, and we're talking about Robert Kennedy. It's been 50 years since his assassination. Explain what he was doing in places like Indonesia and Okinawa that would make you think twice about Robert F. Kennedy. You know, it's amazing, uh, we've forgotten that in 1960, when the United States and Japan signed a treaty of mutual cooperation and security, it's an important treaty because it's what really allowed the old American occupation to morph into, you know, this mild form of occupation where the United States has vast amounts of real estate in Japan for military bases, for docking purposes of its ships and so on. When this treaty was signed, you know, it might surprise people to know that six million Japanese citizens took to the streets of Tokyo to protest against it. I mean, there was really quite vicious opinion in Japan against the uh, continuation of the American occupation by other means. And student Watanabe, a little more gaunt than the last time we saw him. This treaty is one of the imperialistic policies which Japan and the uh, United States and other countries are now putting forth. This treaty will worsen the tension in the Far East. Uh, after this treaty is passed, uh, Japan's policy will again become more imperialistic and militaristic. And uh, there will be more undemocratic pressure over Japan and ja uh, Japanese people. Okinawa was at the center of this, but it was more than Okinawa. It was the totality of the relationship. Well, you know, the ambassador in Japan was a distinguished historian and scholar of Japan, an American ambassador. And he wrote to the State Department and said, you know, we'd like to bring some of the youth of the Kennedy administration, uh, you know, to come and try to change the opinion people have of the United States. So Robert Kennedy comes on a very important tour when he comes to Asia 
and of course later goes to west germany as well but here he comes to japan where he basically makes the case that the united states is the predominant power in the world that sovereignty for the japanese is not as important as having us bases there is a conventional cold war position but he makes it with a certain brio you know with a youthfulness he travels to indonesia which is a very interesting place for him to travel indonesia at the time had the third largest communist party in the world after the ussr after china and it had a communist party that was very close to the ruling group in jakarta that is to say uh, very close to uh, sukarno who was the president in tokyo an urgent peace mission for president johnson is carried out by attorney general robert f kennedy he calls at the hotel suite of vacationing president sukarno of indonesia to try to persuade him to back off from his crush malaysia policy it's a familiar role for the attorney general About two years ago, representing his brother, the late President Kennedy, he held talks in Jakarta that helped head off an Indonesia conflict with the Dutch over West New Guinea. And Robert Kennedy comes to Indonesia on a public relations tour, where he goes to the universities and so on, and he pushes again this line that American democracy is mature, and that young people need to basically respect this maturity. But meanwhile. Robert Kennedy and others are in very close contact with the military in Indonesia and I think it's important to remember that by the mid 1960s one in five military officers in Indonesia had been trained by the United States in 1965 when there is a military coup in Indonesia it's a very important coup and I think people need to know about this particular coup in this uh, period of the coup the military killed 1 million Indonesians many of them people members of the communist party but also sympathizers teachers in rural areas and so on 1 million people were killed in the matter of of a few weeks and what's really astounding about this massacre is that the us embassy and its uh, cia attache handed over lists of names of people the australians also handed over lists of names of people to the Indo- indonesian military whom they wanted to see so called cleansed you know this is also in the history of the cold warrior robert kennedy and i think what happens you know when we look at a tragedy his assassination the final phase of his life when he is pushed by the american left to take up certain issues when we allow that to you know define a person we forget i think the complexity of us power and how cold warriorism really ran right through uh, not only the american right but deep into the democratic party I'm talking with Vijay Prashad, director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, and we're talking about uh, Robert Kennedy, and it's been 50 years since his assassination. How responsible should we hold him for something like Indonesia, where the U.S. intelligence service seems to be running the show? Did he have any direct role there? No, I don't think he had a direct role in 1965 when the coup took place. I don't think he was overseeing operations or anything. But you know. it's i think important for people to reflect now on the nature of this magnificent awful power that the united states is able to wield around the world when you're a part of a bureaucracy that facilitates the killing the execution of a million people in the manner of a week and you don't see anybody resign you don't see officials like robert kennedy make public statements condemning it on the contrary 
Uh, Robert Kennedy and others said, you know, initially that this was a good thing. The New York Times ran a front page story saying that this was a good thing. In his memoir from 1962 about the trip that he took in Japan and Indonesia, the memoir is called Just Friends and Brave Enemies. Kennedy basically says that if we don't get rid of the communists in the whole of Southeast Asia, he's talking here also about Indonesia. He says, capture by the communists in the whole of Southeast Asia. He said then freedom, you know, is going to be essentially in doubt. Freedom is holding on with its fingertips. I mean, this provides the ideological work for that massacre. So I don't think he's to be held personally responsible. But nobody took responsibility for that. And that, I think, is so important because, you know, the fruit of a generation was massacred in that very vast and important country, which to some extent hasn't yet recovered. Do you think that Robert Kennedy went through any kind of real transformation as a peace candidate? Because you seem to indicate that it was almost a tactical move for him rather than something of genuine expression. Well, I I do think that there must have been sincerity. It's very hard, you know, to judge sincerity in the middle of a presidential campaign. I mean, you know, Jerome, you and I have seen enough presidential campaigns to know that to measure sincerity uh, in American politics is virtually impossible. But nonetheless, he consistently raised the question of Vietnam in 1968. And I think this is important. But let's also remember that he was not just pushed by the American left, but he was also pushed by the Vietnamese fighters. Because after all, in January of 1968, at the Tet Offensive, the Vietnamese were able to make significant gains against the South Vietnamese proxy forces of the United States and against the U.S. military. It was quite significant. And Tet, in many ways, changed the nature of the conversation because now it became almost important to suggest that the United States could lose in Vietnam, that the war could be lost militarily, not just politically. So I think that, yes, you know, let's give Robert F. Kennedy the benefit of doubt and say he was sincere about his sense that it was time to negotiate the way out of this Vietnam war. But I think really, I would continue to say that the place where we should doff our caps is both to the American peace movement, anti-war movement, which really pushed people like Kennedy, and we should doff our caps to the Vietnamese themselves, who I think at great cost, at great sacrifice, put on the table the possibility that a peasant army could defeat this highly militarized war machine. After the break, we'll be back with more from Vijay Prashad from Tricontinental and discuss the legacy of RFK and hear some speeches from South Africa. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. 
I'm talking with Vijay Prashad, director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, and we're talking about uh, Robert Kennedy, and it's been 50 years since his assassination. Robert Kennedy was from a family of major league big-time capitalists. In 1968, he gave a speech at the University of Kansas that was called his gross domestic product speech, which seemed to indicate that gross domestic product isn't everything and that community and quality of life is really valuable. And this is one of the great tasks of leadership for us as individuals and citizens this year. But even if we act to erase material poverty, there is another greater task. It is to confront the poverty of satisfaction, purpose, and dignity that afflicts us all. Too much and for too long, we seem to have surrendered personal excellence and community values in the mere accumulation of material things. Our gross national product now is over $800 billion a year. But that gross national product, if we judge the United States of America by that, that gross national product counts air pollution and cigarette advertising and ambulances to clear our highways of carnage. It counts special locks for our doors and the jails for the people who break them. It counts the destruction of the redwoods and the loss of our natural wonders in chaotic sprawl. It counts napalm and it counts nuclear warheads and armored cars for the police to fight the riots in our cities. It counts Whitman's rifle and Specs knife and the television programs which glorify violence in order to sell toys to our children. Yet the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education, or the joy of their play. It does not include the beauty of our poetry or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate, or the integrity of our public officials. It measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. And it can tell us everything about America, except why we are proud that we are Americans. How sincere do you think he was about his kind of critique of capitalism? You know, that Kansas speech is so interesting. And and in fact, really, the speeches that Kennedy gives in the months before he was assassinated are so important. You know, in these speeches, he talks a great deal about drugs, about despair, about what he saw in Mississippi. You know, he says that it was in Mississippi that I saw a child with a distended belly. In other words, he's looking at a civilization that is the American civilization and he's despairing. He's seeing highly educated young people uh, completely turned off from the American project, you know, no real sense of a fealty, loyalty to that tradition uh, that opens up in, say, you know, 1776. Uh, they're not interested in that. Uh, he sees immense poverty uh, in the American South. So I think these things uh, must have had a, an impact on, on Robert Kennedy because he again refers to them repeatedly. Uh, there are lyrical passages in some of these election speeches uh, that he gives when he talks about 
the national soul of the United States. You know, here's somebody, and you can hear echoes of Martin Luther King Jr. You know, when Martin Luther King Jr. as well, you know, looked into the soul of America at this period in 67 and 68 and said, we're spending so much money on war. We're spending so much money on policing, on maintaining Jim Crow in the American South that we're losing our way. And, you know, what we're finding in this mismatched uh, set of, of priorities is that we're finding young children inside America suffering from malnutrition and we're finding educated people fundamentally uninterested in you know the project of America instead you know they're on drugs uh, he, he bemoans this I mean he talks about disengagement and despair our young people the best educated and the best comforted in our history turn from the Peace Corps and public commitment of a few years ago to lies of disengagement and despair, many of them turned on with drugs and turned off in America. Rather than answer the cries of deprivation and despair, rather than answer these desperate cries, hundreds of communities and millions of citizens are looking for their answers to force and repression and private gun stocks so that we confront our fellow citizens across impassable barriers of hostility and mistrust. I think that we can work together. I don't think we have to shoot at each other, to beat each other, to curse each other and criticize each other. I think that we can do better in this country. And if we seem powerless to stop this growing division between Americans who at least confront one another, there are millions more living in the hidden places whose names and faces are completely unknown. But I have seen these other Americans. I have seen children in Mississippi, here in the United States with a gross national product of $800 billion. I have seen children in the Delta area of Mississippi with distended stomachs, whose faces are covered with sores from starvation. And we haven't developed a policy so we can get enough food so that they can live, so that their lives are not destroyed. I don't think that's acceptable in the United States of America, and I think we need a change. I have seen Indians living on their bare and meager reservations with no jobs, with an unemployment rate of 80%, and with so little hope for the future so little hope for the future that for young people, for young men and women in their teens, the greatest cause of death amongst them is suicide. That they end their lives by killing themselves. I don't think that, that we have to accept that. For the first American, I don't think that's acceptable. And I think the United States of America, I think the American people, I think we can do much, much better. And I run for the presidency because of that. I run for the presidency because I have seen proud men in the hills of Appalachia who wish only to work in dignity, but they cannot, for the mines are closed and their jobs are gone. And no one, neither industry nor labor nor government, has cared enough to help. I think we here in this country, with the unselfish spirit that exists in the United States of America, I think we can do better here also.
I have seen the people of the black ghetto listening to ever greater promises of equality and of justice as they sit in the same decaying schools and huddle in the same filthy rooms without heat, warding off the cold and warding off the rats. If we believe that we as Americans are bound together by a common concern for each other, then an urgent national priority is upon us. We must begin to end the disgrace of this other America. So whether sincere or not, I think it was a good and firm judgment about what was. This is really the terrain of Paul Goodman's book, Growing Up Absurd, you know, a book which had a great impact in that period, a book about people just having no faith in the system at all. So again, here is a person trying to recover faith in the system. I think it was an uphill job. I think if he had been elected president in 1968, he would have been as disappointing as Barack Obama was in our century. How do you understand the debate about growth? His passage in the speech of his gross national product speech really relates to the same debates we're having these days about is growth everything, is you know income inequality. It sounds like the same thing, that it hasn't gotten better, it's gotten worse. That was when the war on poverty was at its peak. People were trying to do something about it, and the rhetoric never stuck. It never made it. This is correct. And I think it's going to be a very difficult debate even now. Time has not, I think, uh, matured us in our thinking on these issues. You know, very simple questions of hunger, of education, of health. I mean, these things should seize the imagination, but they don't, of course. I mean, still, we define ourselves based on questions of gross domestic product. You know, we say that the human mind has now been judged according to the double entry account book rather than onto any other form of, you know, very simple uh, morality. So I think that those debates which were then alive, which were alive in the 19th century, continue to be alive. And, you know, I'm not sure I would say that things have got worse or better. I think the soul, if we're going to use the language of Robert Kennedy, of Martin Luther King, the soul has indeed hardened a little bit. But there are sections of our continent which continue to want to hold these debates, you know, to question is it the case that a war on poverty, a very bad phrase, by the way, to use the word war so loosely, uh, should our campaign against poverty or a project against poverty not immediately say that every hungry child should eat? You know, why should there be a test to alleviate hunger? Shouldn't it be that everybody must go to school? Why should there be tests for this? You know, why should people have to prove that they deserve things? It's a very awkward position we've put ourselves into where we don't trust the poor and we keep trying to put tests on the poor. And I think here King is much better than Robert Kennedy because King was directly... I think seized by the idea that we shouldn't test the poor. The poor deserve. The poor have a right. I'm talking with Vijay Prashad, director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, and we're talking about Robert Kennedy. It's been 50 years since his assassination. I wanted to ask about a speech that Robert F. Kennedy gave in Cape Town, South Africa, at the University of Cape Town. And he spoke powerfully about equality, and he talked about uh, there's discrimination in New York, there's the racial inequality of apartheid in South Africa, and serfdom in the mountains of Peru. People starve to death in the streets of India, 
a former prime minister is summarily executed in the Congo. Intellectuals go to jail in Russia and thousands are slaughtered in Indonesia. Wealth is lavished on armaments everywhere in the world. These are different evils, but they are the common works of man. They reflect the imperfections of human justice, the inadequacy of human compassion, the defectiveness of our sensibility toward the sufferings of our fellows. They mark the limit of our ability to use knowledge for the well-being of our fellow human beings throughout the world. This guy seems to really want to deliver a message there and some kind of empathetic way to really address the situation in South Africa. Well, to be honest, I think that's beautiful stuff. And I'm afraid to sound churlish or to sound a little argumentative. But I think it's worthwhile wondering about the value of talking about, say, feudalism or serfdom in Peru or the apartheid system in South Africa in terms of human failings. I mean, human failings is too general and it forgives too much. It doesn't point fingers at any particular system. It makes you point a finger at yourself. So I, I take that kind of language and I say, that's beautiful, Robert, but what? What do we do? I mean, do we then hold hands and pray? Uh, surely, Robert, there is a more specific reason for apartheid in South Africa. It has to do with white monopoly capitalism, Robert. It doesn't have to do with human failings. You know, surely, Robert, the Vietnam War isn't a question of human failings, but a paranoia about communism, a fear of sharing wealth uh, among people. I mean, what I'm trying to say, Jerome, is that Yes, those are stirring words, and so often we get stirring words from you know, political orators of that kind. But if we look closely at what they're saying, there's really nothing there. And I would prefer if uh, people of that distinction and with that much power, if they were to swing uh, to the good side of history, to swing leftward, I would like them to be specific uh, rather than you know, general. And then in the end, let us all off the hook. Another thing that Robert F. Kennedy was associated with had to do with Cuba and the potential assassination of Castro. How do you remember this part of his legacy? You know, it's really not a question of Robert Kennedy alone. It's, again, putting Robert Kennedy into the shoes of the cold warrior that he was. And the entire American political class, the entire American political apparatus was united uh, behind the view that Cuba must be squashed. I mean, it's quite impressive, the kind of unity, uh, the bipartisanship that was against Cuba. I mean, there's a funny joke uh, that Kennedy tells in the Kansas speech where he says, you know, uh, he had been unwell, and he says that, you know, there was a vote in the Senate about his health, and they said, we hope you recover. And he said the vote was 42 to 40. Uh, so, you know, funny, uh, there's partisan dispute about sending Kennedy uh, good wishes. But against Cuba, the vote was 82 to 0. I mean, against Cuba, it's utter bipartisanship on the Cuban situation. So here again, you know, it's not fair to say, Robert Kennedy, you're special on this. It's really, Robert Kennedy, you're ordinary on this. The quite heroic American politician who stood with the anti-war movement would have said, you know what, maybe we should take our shoe off the Cuban neck 
and allow them to practice a little sovereignty. You know, when he makes these great speeches about, you know, the importance of the human, uh, you know, journey to continue and, you know, the importance of people to have free speech. And he says the First Amendment, you know, should be enshrined, free speech, etc. Well, why not let the Cubans speak in their own voice? You know, why not try to listen to them? In this way, Kennedy was quite an ordinary cold warrior, not a kind of uh, standard bearer for a new kind of politics. I mean, he would be shaped by the Cuban Missile Crisis, the idea that Cuba wanted to have nuclear weapons. And, I mean, Castro, he seemed to want to fire him. Well, yes, that's true. But, I mean, there's also a prehistory to that. And, in a way, Robert Kennedy would have understood the prehistory. You know, his brother certainly understood the prehistory. His brother was quite flummoxed by the other two brothers, the Dulles brothers, who were very keen on some kind of, you know, incendiary action like the Bay of Pigs, where the United States actually helped attack Cuba. And so what was that prehistory? The prehistory was that you had a revolution against deep inequality, very popular revolution in 1959. You had a new government arrive, which, you know, reached out to the United States and said, we're very keen on having a relationship because we know that you have the capacity to suffocate our, our revolution. Of course, at the same time, we have the right to take control over our own destiny. So we're not going to allow American telephone companies to charge us enormous fees, etc. We're going to build our own infrastructure. Of course, that really annoyed American multinationals. It annoyed American gangsters and so on. But at a certain point, I mean, if the Kennedy brothers, for instance, were truly seized by the legacy of the American Revolution, they would have looked at these uh, new leaders in Cuba and said, well, let's give them a chance. Instead, of course, the United States, from the beginning, began to embargo Cuba, put pressure on Cuba, in fact, to such an extent that when Castro came to speak at the United Nations, the United States government quite shamefully put pressure on hotels in Manhattan and prevented Castro from getting a room for his delegates, his party that came with him getting rooms in a hotel. It got to such a point that Malcolm X and others had to arrange for lodging for the Cuban delegation up in Harlem. It's a very famous story, but it's one, of course, the Kennedy brothers knew, you know, the kind of disrespect to the Cuban revolution, the attempt to cut it down. So that's the backstory. And I think all foreign policy must be built on long histories, not just reacting to momentary things. You know, if you're merely reacting to an incident from yesterday, you don't have a long perspective all relationships, human relationships, are built on the long term, not on what happens, what somebody says yesterday that irritates you. You've got to have a long perspective and see what your relationship was and what it can be. Vijay Prashad is the director of Tricontinental. It's uh, Institute for Social Research. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about Robert Kennedy. Thanks a lot, Jerome. My brother need not be idealized or enlarged in death beyond what he was in life be remembered simply as a good and decent man who saw wrong and tried to right it, saw suffering and tried to heal it, saw war and tried to stop it. Those of us who loved him and who take him to his rest today pray that what he was to us, what he wished for others, will someday come to pass for all the world. As he said many times in many parts of this nation, to those he touched and who sought to touch him, 
George Bernard Shaw once wrote, Some, Some men see things as they are and say why. I, I dream things, things that never were. That never were and say why not. So I come here to Kansas to ask for your help. If you believe the United States can do better, if you believe that we should change our course of action, if you believe that the United States stands for something here internally as well as elsewhere around the globe, I ask for your help and your assistance and your hand over the period of the next five months. And when we win in November, and we begin a new period of time for the United States of America, I want the next generation of Americans to look back upon this period and say, as they said in Plato, joy was in those days but to live. Thank you very much. Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated 50 years ago thanks to Vijay Prashad from Tricontinental for a discussion about the complicated legacy of RFK, his foreign policy, and inequality. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to talk with Ed Luce from the Financial Times, and we'll talk about democracy, Trump, and American apathy. We're also going to have our Global Notes segment with Catalina Maria Johnson and talk about the Latinx Music Festival that is coming to Chicago. Do you know that you can listen to Worldview whenever and wherever you want? Subscribe to the Worldview podcast on iTunes, on Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can go to wbez.org slash worldview and click subscribe. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Mike Gilmore for engineering. Daniel Musisi curated our music. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.